in the last episode on Dungeon Train, our last group of heroes went through a treacherous journey of a renaissance festival. Except this renaissance festival was filled with shenanigans, robbery, and magic. When the ground started to rumble and the sky started to turn a pale blue, they were encased in an energy field unlike no other. They were teleported to a world unknown. It looks kind of like a more hilly Ohio, but in, and now that I think about it, it, it's just Kentucky. It just looks like Kentucky. Uh, yeah, just do that with what do with that what you will. Anyway, these heroes found themselves lying on the ground, unconscious, getting pickpocketed by a wizard, and confused until a dragon came down and destroyed the town. There were fatalities that day, and the heroes didn't really know what to do. They ended up retreating, finding the magical items that they used in the campaign that they just finished. Is this real life? Or is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide. Uh, oh, all right, that sounds food. okay. Uh, yeah, they, they started booking it. They started running right out of that shop, and then one of their own, the dungeon master himself, Finn, ran to sacrifice himself as a distraction as the dragon came over and ate him. The group of heroes got out of the town gates and started running into the sunset as the sky began to darken in an unknown land. They have nowhere to go, except everywhere to go. They just don't know it yet. Welcome aboard, adventurer. I'm glad you made it back in one piece. I'm sure you're ready to jump back in. There's plenty of places to see, stories to hear, and characters to meet. And if you come back alive, I'll be waiting here saving you a seat. I just hope you came prepared. The worlds inside are dangerous, but you already know that. Enjoy your stay on the dungeon train, and safe travels, my friend. You'll need it. The camera begins to pan back towards the Renaissance Festival, because it's not time to Look at our heroes right now. Something more interesting's happening. The dragon is making its way around the festival grounds, and it's beginning to calm down from the destruction. But something seems to be in its throat. It begins to cough. <coughs> and it spits up a very wet, gross hairless man the dragon thinks nothing of it and he begins to walk away finding a nest to lie in the dragons hang out in nests i i'm i'm not going to lie i i haven't read through any of the books uh so in this world they lay in nests yeah they lay in nests anyway let's go back to the hairless wet man on the ground the hand 
of this man begins to twitch ever so slightly and the arm begins to raise and slams into the dirt begins to push itself up staring towards the setting sun orange in his eyes and this unknown person that you probably know by now speaks out forever oh I'm in so much pain oh I'm gonna get those guys and then the camera whips around. It begins to freak out. Nobody knows what's happening. We start seeing glimpses around the land. We see a desert, a giant tree that's dancing. It looks crazy. And then there's an ice cap. There's rivers. There's a lake. There's floating mountains with upside down waterfalls. Who knows what's going on there? This world is freaking out, but it's not the world. It's the camera. It's you guys. You are getting sucked out of something that it, it, it's, it seems like you were in it, you were, you were seeing something, and then it crashes. It slams out of the world, kind of like you broke through the barrier of the sky. And you're back into a familiar land that we saw in the beginning of this series. A train passing by. Not slowing down for anything, passing by a station with one single man waiting. But we're not gonna talk about that man because we are already gone. And then your view starts to redirect itself, aiming towards another train car. And then without a second to spare, you slam into that glass and you get shunted into a new universe, a new train car, a new story. Welcome to Campaign 2. Enjoy. Hello everyone, my name is Alex. I'll be your dungeon master for the Lycanthrop campaign. I wanted to briefly go over how Lycanthropy actually worked in my world. It's actually homebrewed in nothing like the 5th edition handbook says. So the way Lycanthropy works is in my world when you change into your lycanthrope form you're actually changing classes entirely uh, let me give you a good example the character actually came up with this uh, system with they are a druid in humanoid form they have all the regular druid abilities but when they transform into their lycanthrope form they actually change classes specifically they turn into a barbarian path of the beast uh, they're a standard werewolf so that's kind of how lycanthropy works in my world as well. So one of our characters will be one class when they're in humanoid form, and then they switch classes whenever they transform into their lycanthrope forms. It's not exact. They don't have every single ability from that class because a lot of it wouldn't make sense. Um, I take away abilities. I add some special racial traits for each lycanthrope. Each one has a different racial trait or a few uh, things they can do because of what they are. And we... We kind of use the classes and the subclasses as a template, not an exact guide. So that is how Lycanthropy works, specifically for the player characters in my world. Um, they also only have one form. They only have the hybrid form as of right now. I just wanted to go ahead and explain that. And so, yeah, thank you guys for listening. And let's go ahead and get started. I hope you guys enjoy.
Have you guys ever thought about dreams and how weird they are? You always remember what you're doing in the dream. The, the very specific thing that you're doing. Like maybe you're flying with eagles. Maybe you're like swimming in the ocean with a beautiful mermaid. Maybe you're at a rock concert. But how did you get there? Did you wake up that morning? What was it like when you woke up? There is no beginning. When you dream, you always dream the main event, but you can never remember how it started. Now, I'm sure science can explain that in some way, but have you ever noticed how life is also kind of like that? You can't remember being born. You don't remember your first words. You don't remember your first steps. You just know who you are and you know what your purpose is innately. Maybe you can't verbalize it, maybe you can't actively think about it, but you know you have some purpose. You just don't know what it is yet, and you're looking to find out. And that's where we start. Welcome to my world. You all know it as Agnata Waya. You know that the name of this world has some meaning that's been lost over the ages, over time. Agatanya Waya. You don't know what that means. Everyone just knows it's the name of this continent. And this is where we begin our story. So, what's your character's name? My character's name is Jack. Give me a, a pretty good description of Jack in his normal day-to-day -day life. Jack's day-to-day -day life is probably closest to Aladdin, if we're trying to think of any uh, character people might know. You know, a little bit of a street rat, runs around, yeah, for the most part friendly, definitely a little bit aggressive. Uh, makes his living through uh, not so sinister, but not necessarily legal means. Runs around, takes what he needs to get by. He learned how to get by by working with his street rat friends for a long, long time. And then after they got in a lot of trouble, Jack felt lost. He didn't know what to do with himself. And he fell off the beaten path and he had a lot of resentment so towards the world. Actually, you remember very one specific day when you just had enough of the life that you were living. You, you, your friends were put in jail and you were trying to do everything you could to prevent it and you just it was a rainy day and nothing could help but make you feel really sad and in that sadness in that rage jack felt the need to lash out and he missed his friends and he felt so lonely and isolated and so he went to try to break them out he didn't go with any particular plan in mind he just went in with a lot of anger a lot of resentment towards the place the world had left him in and there he found a certain guard what was that guard's name Kyle Koala. And Kyle was a, a kind-hearted guard compared to the harsh conditions laid out around the rest of the city. And Kyle knew from Jack's demeanor that he wasn't an innately bad person. And he said to him, I, I want to help you. I want to give you the opportunities that life hasn't up to this point. And, and Kyle led you somewhere. Where did he lead you? Kyle led Jack to a monastery. What a mo monastery? 
a, uh, a bit of an outcast monastery, one that's very private, very secluded. Most of the people in Jack's homeland aren't really familiar with what goes on behind closed doors, just that it is a faith. They don't worship any specific god? They, they worship a god, an entity, but not much is known about said entity. He's known to be animalistic. Uh, the best way to describe him would be a god in between what you might expect. There's one small detail you're leaving out about Jack, and what is that detail? That detail being that Jack is a lycanthrop. What kind of lycanthrop? Jack is a kangaroo lycanthrop. Jack's, Jack's always been a lycanthrop, hasn't he? Ever he, since he could remember. He has, since the beginning of time, and he was an orphan. His earliest memories are with his group of friends that were in prison. Who, you, you, actually, you actually do have one memory of your mother. This, this memory of your mother is of her giving you something. It's an item that you've kept for a very long time. You don't quite know what it is, but you, you specifically remember her giving it to you, and then she puts her hand on the side of your face as a small child. And then that's the last memory you have of her. And it's just a small box that you've never been able to open. It's almost made of like a really hard stone ceramic. And it's something that Jack has kept with him every day through every hardship. And anytime he's lost his possessions, anytime he's gotten in a brawl, it's something that's very near and dear and something Jack will fight at all costs to preserve. Because even with his rogue nature jack has a fierce loyalty to the people that care about him to the people who have extended the effort that he has tried to extend out into the world tell us more about the person you met at the monastery jack met a very interesting man named percy percy while not sinister per se is secluded mm-hmm Percy's intentions, while seemingly noble, taking in this orphaned street kid, were never made clear to Jack, as well as his method of worship. Percy was a very private individual who taught Jack social skills, life skills, everything that he might need to thrive off of the street, to integrate into society. However, Percy also taught Jack to fight for seemingly no apparent reason. Part of Jack's monastery training, part of his integration into the world, included extensive martial arts training. Yes, that's correct. And a lot of your martial arts training actually took its place outside of the monastery, which you thought was rather odd because most of the people in the monastery who did train in martial arts, they there was a training area. And that's kind of where you started. But as, as time went on, you eventually transitioned to this like little outing that was right outside the monastery, probably about a half mile away. This little clearing, and it had just everything you needed to train. And in ways, you almost actually felt comfortable out there, more so than being in the city, especially when you would transform into your lycanthropath. Tell us more about the kind of training you developed. Jack's training was, to put it shortly, acrobatic high-flying aerial moves, uh, extravagant, almost wrestling-type finishers. Because as much as Jack is a rogue, he's also excited. He is a little flamboyant, a little boisterous. Even if he's not as charming as he'd like to be, he 
is definitely as charismatic as he would like to be. He wants the world to accept him. And part of that is definitely playing a character that's larger than life. But that aspect of Jack's personality, again, is a character because he is a misunderstood street kid. He's someone who wants more than anything to fit in. And as he's done more and more with his martial arts training, he's started to feel more confident. And as he's felt more confident, he's realizing that maybe he doesn't understand Percy as much as he thought he did. I, I would definitely say so. You remember one specific day, and it was actually pretty recently. I would say it's probably about a week before our campaign takes place. One day, he, your master took you out to the woods, to the clearing. He actually took you a little bit further beyond the clearing. You were, he thought, you thought they were going to go out and have training. Well, he got out there, and then he just sat down right next to this little lake. This little lake that's kind of hidden in the forest. And he looks at you, and he says, you've grown quite a bit since I first found you. You know that. And I know my techniques and my ways have not been the most clear to you. And I know it bothers you a little bit. But I promise you one day you'll understand. And he just looks off into the lake. Do you say anything to him? Jack sat quietly and he just told Percy, I love you. I love everything you've done for me. And I can't claim to understand everything about you and about our way of life. But I'm thankful for it. He just sits there in silence for Lord knows how long. It feels like forever. You're waiting for a reply from him. He just won't seem to give it. And he reaches down into the water. And he pulls up a lily pad. And he looks at it. And he holds it between you and me. Or you and him. And as he looks at it and you look at it, it starts to bloom. And he looks at you and he says, There's a reason I bring you out here to train and not use the facilities we have at the monastery. You've lived your whole life in that city. And it's weighed down on your mind. Nature is a place where you can clear your mind. And if you listen close, closely, he puts his hand on your shoulder. You can even hear the small spirits and the things that make life worth living. And as he puts his hand on your shoulder, you feel a strange warmth. And he gives you the lily and you hold it in your hand. And as this warmth fills you up, you start to hear these little whispers just here and there. They, you can't quite make, understand what they're saying. You can't make it out. But as you hold that lily, it starts to grow. You've now learned to cast nature's insight. And you can do this whenever you want. You find some strange peace in nature now. In these abilities that you've been taught innately. You don't quite understand what he did to teach you. you he's already a mysterious character enough. But it almost didn't feel like he taught you anything. It, it almost felt like he just brought something from within you out to the surface. Then you actually proceed with your normal training. Today you train in the water. 
it's a little harder than what you've normally done because the water is resistant. You try to kick and it pushes back. On and he says over the next week, you're going to be training in the water. And he tells you to finish up your lesson and he walks out of the forest to leave you to it. And that's where we're going to end with your character. So we transition from the small monastery outside of the city to just at the edge of the city where there's a, there's actually a, it's it's kind of like a tower. It actually looks more like a pyramid, something you'd see in like the Mayan culture. And it's where we find all the mages. And we find, what do we find there? Who do we find there? You find Salazar the Wizard Apprentice. Okay, Salazar, tell us about your early childhood. Uh, So... From a very young age, uh, Salazar had a uh, innate skill for magic, but his parents were killed in an unfortunate accident. Yeah, and actually they were trying to find a place for you to hone those skills, weren't they? That's why you ended up in the city. Um, they were right outside the city in a small village when there was a, uh, I believe it was a fire? Yes, a fire. A fire burned down their house, and it was the saddest thing. You remember being so young at the time. It was actually one of your first memories. And someone came up to you. Who was that? It was a a wizard. He was a really old wizard. Very old wizard. He was also really tall. He, he almost looked like a stereotypical wizard, except he was completely bald. He didn't have any facial hair whatsoever. And he was just wearing a regular cloak. No hood, no nothing, just a cloak. And he walked up to you, and he put his hand on your shoulder. And he said... My name is Balak. I, I was a friend of your father's. I will take care of you. Come. And he brought you to this city, into this pyramid-like area where he put you in front of a group of a lot of older gentlemen. And he asked you to do what you do. So you raised your hands and sparks started to fly. From your fingertips and even one of the older men like kind of leans forward and dips his glasses down and one guy just completely takes them off as they look at you and they ask how old is this child and he looks to you nine and the wizards kind of sit back and they look at each other and they kind of start whispering you know to each other and then one of them steps forward and nods to Balak and he takes you away and you were the youngest person ever accepted into this college. Is that right? Yep. You had some strange innate abilities. What kind of magic did you do? Did you study over the years? I uh, studied conjuration. But you always had like a hidden interest in something. What was it? Necromancy. Yeah. It, it, was, very, it was very weird, right? Because it's almost attributed to your parents' death at such a young age that death was a fascination to you, but not, not in a creepy way. It was almost just like, I want to understand it. And you would always sneak away and try to perform these like tasks, right? Usually with some of the roadkill they found and things like that. 
Um, can you describe one of these uh, times where you did that? So on the side of the road, I saw a dead squirrel. Mm -hmm. I went up to it and attempted to use a reanimate spell. What happened? The squirrel started to started to twitch. But it, it didn't work, did it? No. It just twitched a little bit. It was not a complete spell. That's when you started sneaking into the laboratories later at night. And you heard about this strange specimen that they brought in one day. What was it? What they, what did they think it was? A large bird, raven-like. Yeah. And you thought, this is perfect. I can go and test this. So you go down there and you you actually take some supplies from the closet. This particular closet is something that most students have access to. Think of something kind of like Harry Potter um, in their potions class where they have like their spell books and their utilities. There's a part of the closet that you're never allowed to go into and you notice it's unlocked. It has this little feather in a glass case. And you go to take that feather and you know this feather is used for necromancy activity, but you don't quite understand what it's used for. So you figured, well, I, I can probably just have it and I'll use it. And you start casting the spell. You read from the book as you pull the feather out and dip it in a cauldron of this liquid. And you wave the feather as this green mist starts to appear. You tap the bird on each limb with this feather and the head twice. And you put the feather down. What happens? <laughs> A big explosion. <laughs> and this thing wakes up. And it doesn't look like a raven, does it? No. It's too... Monstrous. Monstrous to humanoid. And it attacks you. It starts mauling you. And you pass out. But where are you when you wake up? In the infirmary. Yeah. And the nurse walks and the nurse walks up to you and she goes, Salazar, you're awake. How do you feel? Tired. Here, have some water. You gotta reach for the water. What happens? I jerk. I jerk and you realize my arm doesn't feel right. You're chained to the bed. And you look down. Your entire body is chained to this bed. And she gives you the water. You can just barely bring that glass to your mouth. And you just look at her bewildered. And she looks at you and she kind of looks down. She tells you that thing that you animated was actually a lycanthrope. And it bit you. And that was a week ago. You had been in a coma almost for a week as they tried to heal you. And she tells you, we, we brought the best clerics we could. The clerics, they, they said they couldn't change it back. So, so I'm sorry, you've, you've contracted this curse. You're a lycanthrope now. And over, over the next three or four years, at this point, you're probably like 15, you, you kind of start coping with this curse. But right after this incident happens, you were put before the mages, the head mages, and they scold you. They make you feel belittled. And they tell you, how dare you sneak into the laboratory late at night? You knew better, didn't you, Salazar? But, yeah, I did. Why? Why did you experience this magic? 
Why did you experiment with it? This is not even your school. I just wanted to... He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just a child. No, he knew damn good and well what he was doing. You know this is something you could be expelled for. We should kick you out on the streets right now. And all, as, the, as he says that, the door burst open. And you see another, no one other than Balak. Balak walks into the room. And he says, Balak, you have no business being here. I think I do. You brought this creature into the tower. Yes, it was for experimentation, as we bring many other animals. What other animals have you dealt with, Salazar? And you, you go to speak, and Balak raises his hand to you. And he looks towards the mages. My student was simply interested in a different form of magic. You, however, brought a monstrosity into this tower, into the necromancy lab for experimentation. So maybe Salazar was the person who experimented on it, yes. But what would have happened if Rafik had done it instead? And the head mage that was talking to you previously, yelling at you, goes white. You know that that's actually his student, his personal one-on-one -on -one student. That's right. What if it was someone else that tried to reanimate the creature? What if it had bit them? What if it attacked multiple students? What would you have done? Do you say anything at all? Salazar is speechless. So are the other mages, actually. They sit there and they kind of look at each other and they go to converse. And Balak says, if anything, you should be taken off your chair for what you've brought into the school. What you've done to the student. You've cursed him. He might have to live the rest of his life this way. Because of you. And they converse very shortly. 30 seconds tops. And they turn around and they look at you. We will dismiss this matter. And we will help you cope with your new prognosis. You are dismissed, Salazar. Thank you, Headmaster. And as you walk out... Balak puts his arm around you and you hit the, he opens the door for you and he doesn't say anything to you, but he looks at you and you could have swore he gave you a wink and he turns around and he walks away. Your master makes you feel like his son in a weird way, but it's very clear that he doesn't want you to feel this way. He, he tries to remain professional, but every once in a while he, you can't help but notice he treats you a little differently. Like when you were very young, he would like wipe your face off when you had food or smudge here and there. Sometimes he would even get the stains out of your clothing when you went outside to play. You feel a warmth when you're with him. And it makes you think of your father. Do you want to add anything to that? I guess in a way that's all Salazar has known for the last couple of years is that Valak is his father figure. I'd say so. So one day, Balak brings you outside of the tower, actually. Actually, he brings you outside of the city. And he says that you're going to be conducting... He, as you walk out, he sees one of the guards to the tower. Hey, Balak. Hello, sir. Are we leaving the tower today, sir? Yes, if I could have the, the book. 
It's a logbook that kind of that the um, teachers have to sign when they leave with their students, especially people who live at the tower like yourself. You actually have a room and a place to like relax when you're not studying at the tower itself. And he signs for the reason as he's talking to this card, you hear him over say, oh, yes, we're going to be working on a new technique today outside. I figured we might as well go outside and get some fresh air. Sounds good, Balak. We will expect you back at 6 p.m. It's probably about noon when you guys leave. You guys go out to this little, like, clearing. No, it's not much of a clearing, actually. It's like this little path. that It's probably like a little game trail, you know? Some deer and other animals probably, like, go to. And you find this tree. This very big tree. It's, it's a pretty big tree. You remember... You think about the trees that you had from when you were growing up. What's the first thing you do when you walk up to this tree? Start to try to climb it. Yeah. You start to climb this tree and you get to like where the trunk ends and the branches start. And then a knot from the tree below you just gives way and you fall over and you're like upside down. And Balak looks at you upside down and he just... (laughs) (laughs) And you guys start laughing. It's been it's made clear that you guys aren't practicing today. Uh, but you still don't know why he brought you out, out to the this little, like, meadow area. Or not meadow, sorry. This little forested area. You guys kind of walk around. and You see some interesting things, actually. You see a dryad. A beautiful woman that's imbued with nature themselves. And she kind of looks at you. And she, like, puts her hand on her head, or her uh, head on her hands. And she like whistles to you and goes, mm-hmm. and then like ducks behind a log and disappears. And Balak kind of puts his arm around you, said, "Oh, they may look more woman than plants, my friend, but um, he kind of pulls his collar a little bit. Believe me, they're uh, they're, they're, uh, they're quite something." <laughs> Salazar, I um, I know you're probably wondering why I uh, brought you out here today. You've been you've been working very hard lately, and I figured I'd give you a reward. The tower doesn't need to know about this. As he gives you a wink, I figured you don't get to leave the town very much, and you're much more of a free spirit. I want to ask you something. You remember that song that your father taught you? Yes, I do. He asks you to recite it. And you look at him the same way you're looking at me now. You kind of look down, and he smiles. I knew you didn't. You were very young when your father taught you this song. I want to teach it to you. And he kind of gestures over to another dryad. And the dryad looks. And she, like, ducks down behind a tree and you kind of see how the peripheral of your eye she appears from a different tree about 60 feet away and as she does this the wind stops dead silence and you look up and the trees are still moving but they're not rustling they're not making a noise he puts his hand on your shoulder You've always felt very comfortable around your master, right? Yeah. He knows about your condition. 
Everyone does. Most people to this tower know about your condition. At least the headmasters do. They've always tried to keep it a secret to the other students, especially since the accident, because they don't want people to leave the tower. He puts his hand on your shoulder and he says to you, now Salazar, I know your memory's not the best, but I know a thing or two about wire ravens. And he like clenches your shoulder and you feel this strange like twinge as a strange tingling sensation goes from your shoulder through the back of your neck into your head and you transform into a wear raven but you feel so aware so much more here in the present than normal and he says to you hear this song memorize it And he says to you, he starts humming. We walk through a valley of thunder just to carry him home. Take to the trees Those higher than our foes We rise with the sun Follow the eagle's run Just to carry him home As he as he's doing the chant, he's beating his chest with a wand. As he hits his chest, it almost kind of sounds like a hand beating on metal, like a chainmail. And as he's singing, you notice that in the background, behind him are four dryads sitting in trees, humming. Oh, oh. You find it a little weird that they know the song, but being in your lycanthrope form, 
you can mimic sounds perfectly. And you've memorized this song. You know that once you transform back into your human form, you you will remember it. But the power you felt behind the words, the way he sung it, you know you can only perform that while you're still in your lycanthrop form. As he finishes singing the song to you, he lets go of your shoulder, and you revert back. You feel that twinge go down your head again through your shoulder. And you kind of look at him, a little bewildered, I'd assume. And he just looks at you. And he gestures to a dryad to come to you. She holds out her hand. Do you look at it? I look in the hand. You see, like, it looks like a small stem. And she speaks something to you in a language that you don't know. And your master kind of looks at you and he gestures to your hand. He says, touch that spot. I reach out to her. You touch the spot. And you feel this warmth flow through you. Something that you haven't felt in a long time. As you touch this, what looks like a small piece of a stem, a flower grows from it. Your mind starts to like fade a little bit. This strange high kind of hits you. And you like let go in shock and you kind of fall backwards. You touch a tree where your hand hits the tree. A branch starts to grow and your master grabs your hand and pulls it off. What do you say? What I do? He just looks at you in silence. As the, and you look up, the dryad's gone. He says to you, Your father was the one that taught me that song. It has a lot of meaning to it. And it is about finding the right way through life. Finding the right path. And this is part of it. Your family has a gift. And what you just learned was part of it. You can now cast nature's insight. Requiring no material components. It's a cantrip. Okay. You can look it up in the player's handbook later. (laughs) takes you back to the pyramid pyramid tower whatever you want to call it and this is you realize that when you go back it had already been six hours six hours had passed since he took you out it only felt like two but it was magical and you feel a strange sense of peace Hello there, fellow viewers. Wow, this is a first. We're doing a mid-roll. Our one sponsor today is ourselves, Dungeon Train. And from me, Max Brummer, the producer, I just want to thank you for listening and getting into these stories. As you can tell, we are starting to get into more of this world. More of 
the overall story of this podcast, this crazy podcast. You're going to get it soon. It's a little bit confusing at first, but let me assure you that this stuff is going to be awesome. We have multiple DMs working very hard to build these worlds and get our stories out there. The beginning of this whole thing started from me wanting to allow the opportunity for people to tell their stories because it doesn't happen that often. So thank you for listening to all of these guys' stories. They're so talented and enjoy the rest of the episode. We leave the tower and we go a few miles to the west where we encounter a very small reclusive village and we see a young man with a blindfold. There is a rather thin man, uh, almost like a boy, very small, very skinny, um, wearing these white vestments with orange and gold running through them, uh, a red patch in the very center of it, and a white blindfold going through medium length one white long hair. What's your name? And his name is Monada Stacky. It's a very beautiful description, but you're not human, are you? No. What are you? Monada is Nazamar. A rarity in the village. Very rare. Why don't you, um, let's start with your beginning. Where did you come from? Monada came from a household uh, near the outskirts of the village that had a doctor father and a druid mother. She was a druid. However, you didn't know her as a druid. No, I did not. You knew her as someone who was very in tune with nature because if your character had heard the word druid, they wouldn't know what that meant. Indeed. So this town is very, very interesting because most of its government is actually kind of, or I, I say government with loose terms, people who yeah. are in charge, they're actually kind of um, being run by who? For the most part, it's run by the local church. A church? Indeed. The Church of Paylor. Hmm. Now, your town is, while it's run by this church, it, it sounds like it could be very bad. But actually, the church treat, treats your town very well, um, very fair. And you don't have to specifically be a part of the church to have their favor. Of course you, not. You just you had to be a local, which is fair. Most small towns are like that. Something really tragic happened to your family, though, one day. What happened? Some accident happened. One my character doesn't remember too well, but there was a fire. And they didn't make it out. 
but my character did. You remember one small detail. You remember waking up covered in ash and soot with a face hanging over you. And that face wasn't human. It was actually a lamb. And the lamb looks at you and it speaks to you. And you're so out of it. Your ears are covered in soot and you can't quite understand what it's saying. But you hear the words, help. As it takes you away. What happens from there? My character was eight when that happened. Spent the next seven years as the town orphan. Received plenty of pity from the villagers, but wasn't too well accepted. However, then came the Church of Paylor. Someone approached you, didn't they? Yes. What did they offer you? They offered me a place amongst them as one of their acolytes. And part of that initiation involved taking in a certain blessing of theirs. What'd they do to you? They initiated me as one of the many lycanthropes amongst them. They bit you. Indeed. They were all lamb lycanthropes, weren't they? Yes. It was a sign of blessing from Paylor. But your ritual didn't go as planned. It it actually kind of went south. You were bit, and at first things were fine, but over the next three days, your condition got worse. You could feel an infection in your arm rage through your body. Constant sweats, hallucinations, fevers. They thought you were going to die. They were actually preparing to place you next to some of their other fallen brothers who did not survive the ceremony. And you knew this, though there was nothing you could do to stop it. And on the third day when, right as you heard someone mention mercy killing you, you felt this strange, this strange tingle deep within your stomach, almost like you're going to vomit. But you don't, do you? No. What happens? I have my first transformation. And it was wild. No pun intended. You go on this rampage that you can barely remember. You remember only the very end of it. You're being held. But you're being held in a weird position. It almost looks like they're holding your head. And they finally calm you down. And you transform back. Your brothers are all staring at you. Especially the one that was holding you by the head. Do you say anything? Did... Did it work? One of them steps forward. He says... You're... You're a ram. What do you mean? I... grew horns. You, you, horns? You, horns. You, you grew horns. You, you weren't just a sheep. You, you were a ram. I'm sorry. And they all just stare at you. And one of your, uh, well, the person who actually got you into the, um, 
the church actually kind of walks up to you and takes you by the arm and kind of like shuffles you away. And you're just bewildered. Because everything you've known has taught you that that is not good. And you get stares for days. In fact, the elders even try to purge you of this, what they would call a curse. What did they do to you? was about three years later, if I recall, after various other ceremonies failed to yield results. I was initiated into one of their later ceremonies for the more zealous among them. I was to stare into the light of Palor for seconds minutes, hours. At one point he stared into it for two days. Staring straight into the sun. It blinded you. You you couldn't see after two weeks of this treatment. And you struggled a little bit. Because no matter what they did, no matter how long you stared into the light of Palor, nothing would cleanse you. And you kind of felt defeated. So one day, you went outside of town. Why did you leave the town that day? Do you remember? I want to return home for a moment. I just missed when things were a little simpler. It was moment of weakness and I shouldn't have because you never made it home that day did you never did you you reached a sign and you knew that sign you you felt the ridges and you knew that it was the, the crossroads between where you were and your little like town you you, you remember thinking to yourself oh my lord I've probably been traveling for hours. I'm just not reaching the sign. That sign should have only taken you probably an hour to reach. Maybe you knew you had to turn back. So you did. Well, on your way back, you trip and you fall. You lose like half the stuff in your bag. Something, someone comes up to you. Don't they? An outsider. And they kind of take you by the hand. And they say, well, looks like you need some help there, bud. Let me, uh, let me help you out there. Who are you? It's, it's okay. I'm a friend. My, I'm, I'm, I'm a friend. I promise. Here, here. And he takes your hand, a little forcibly, and he places it on your books. You recognize the feeling of your books in your bags. And he says, I'm just, I'm just walking by, man. I'm just here. Where, where are you going? Back to the village. Oh, I'm, I'm actually on my way there, too. Let me help you. Thank you. And he helps you gather your things. And you probably make it pretty clear that you feel uncomfortable, right? Of course. So he said, he kind of like, he does, you can't see what he's looking like. So he kind of steps away from you and you can hear him. He says, I, I don't want to be weird. I just want to help you get back to your village. Okay. I'm going to walk in front of you. Maybe we can just like talk and you can follow me. How's that sound? Oh, okay. And so you kind of, you guys just kind of start talking. He asks your name. My name is Lanada. It's a beautiful name. Where did you get it from? 
My mother and father. Oh, are they at the village? No. Oh. Okay. Uh, this way. Oh, you're about to watch, watch it. You're about to hit a rock. And that, that kind of conversation, just, you know, very small talk, kind of keeps you on the way. He eventually makes it back to the city. You actually hear the, um, or sorry, this, no, not the city, the small village. You actually hear the sound of, like, the two guards that stand outside this village every day. You hear them talking. Who are you? Just a traveler. I I found one of your companions. Uh, hey. Oh my goodness, there you are. We've been trying to find you everywhere. The elders were looking to talk to you. Where'd you go? I'm sorry, I just... Uh... He, he was trying to... um, He he was trying to go for a walk, and he, he got a little far off the beaten path as the stranger interrupts you. He, um, I found him on the side of the road. He kind of fell, and I helped gather his things. You hear the strange silence, but you get the feeling that these guards are giving them a look. You've seen the look before to an outsider. You know what they look like. You've interacted with these guards so many times, and you've always been there when an outsider is there with them. They give this, like, squint, and they look at them. What are you here for? I'm just uh, passing through, really. You may enter, and you guys enter back. That's not the last time you saw him, though, was it, the outsider? No, it wasn't. You guys kept seeing each other. It started off kind of like every once in a while. Make, I think you saw him, what, almost a month later? And then it started becoming more frequent, didn't it? It was very difficult to find a conversation in the village. So it was nice to meet someone that seemed a lot more open with it than if it is an outsider. As you start to hang with this outsider outside of the village, you, you get the sense from your brothers that they don't like this guy. There's something about him that they don't like, but you can't quite figure out what it is. He he seems like a genuine person. Nothing too special. He even helps you with your condition. He gives you these two little wooden blocks, almost like little wooden castanets that go on your fingers, and it helps you to listen and to know what's going on around you. A few years pass, and one day, the outsider and you are just outside the city in the forest. He's talking to you. Okay. Lana, he, he kind of looks at you as you're in this forest, and he's like, Lanata. Yes? We've known each other for quite a while now. I know you're, uh... You're really just... Whoa, 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 whoa! As you're attacked. And you're muffled, and... You get scared. You transform. And... You still can't see in your Lacanthrop form because of what they've done to you. You hear this group of fellows speak very strange language that you've never heard. It doesn't sound like anything you know. It sounds like gibberish. You can't see what they are, what they look like. You just know you need to run. And you hear the outsider, no, leave him, do not harm him. 
as one of them grabs you by the horns and you're like huffing and and you're kicking and they restrain you they hold you down no 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 lanata and you hear boom 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 as it's clear that they knock him out as you're being held you get this memory that pops up in your mind it was about a month before when you were out in the forest in your ram form and you were trying to figure things out because you at least wanted some sort of control over it. And you remember the outsider telling you to listen. You just need to listen. But you can't. When you're in this form, you just can't focus enough to listen. There's just something wild about it. And as you get this thought, you hear a voice coming from deep inside of you, almost like more of a feeling. Move left. Yeah, move left. You feel an axe graze your hairs, probably cutting a few in half, making some split hairs for you. And then you hear that same strange voice, left foot, and you kick. You hit someone, they let go of you. Forward, and you shove forward, and you knock the person holding your horns down. You don't understand it. You fight, and you fight hard. You're pretty sure you almost killed someone. You could feel one of the tips of your horns going into someone's, like, belly. And they start running away. And you fall over, you collapse, and you transform back. The outsider, like, you feel these hands reaching to touch you. Lenata. Lenata, what? What? I think they're gone. What happened? I don't know. I, I, I heard. I, I thought I heard something. I don't. I, I could just feel where they were. I could. You. You listened. Listen? You heard the voice, didn't you? What's the voice? Come. We should go. It's it's getting late. We need to get back to the village. Okay. He risks you away. You learn to cope with this strange voice that's in your head. And you're about 19 years old now. And one day, you're with the outsider and something's on your mind. Can I ask you something? Yeah, what is it, Lonata? What's up? You've lost my vision a while ago, but... I want to know what your face looks like. Do you mind if I feel it? Just have a general sense? If, if not, that that's fine, but... He doesn't say anything for like a minute. He goes, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you can feel it. And he kind of takes your hands and he puts them on his face very gently. You move your hands up and down his head. You find something though, don't you? What do you find? Horns? You run away. You feel those horns and you just, you just run. What do those mean to you? Why do you run? Those were always signs of something infernal, demonic, wrong. They're not supposed to be there. 
you go back to your room at the monastery, at the church, and you pull out the one item that's always calmed you down. What was that item? Can you describe it for me? It's a small cloak meant for a child, but... It's almost comically small on you, actually, because of how old you are, right? Indeed. It was never meant for somebody my age, but I still hold on to it. It's this black cloak with a hood on it, and the hood is roughly sewn into the shape of a wolf head. Now, despite your age, the hood itself actually fits you pretty well. It It's probably, and you just kind of attribute it to your parents growing up the way they did, and um, you assume that your mom was going to make the cloak longer for you as you got older. That's actually how a lot of people in your village grew up. They kind of started off with one small piece of clothing, and which just kind of changed over time. But your mom was the one that gave you that cloak, wasn't she? She was. You remember as you're holding onto this cloak, thinking about what you just learned about your best friend, the stranger. You remember your mom always talk about hard work. And this is one of the first and only memories you have of her, of her as she's in the field, making these beautiful plants grow. You remember her saying, you're going to find your path one day. You're so important. And you're going to find that out one day. As the elders burst into your room. I immediately stuff it into where I was storing it and uh, close it shut and stand up to attention. We, we've been thinking about your condition. We are going to put things on hold for a while. Until we can come up with something. What's wrong? Nothing. I... I understand. You look a little shocked. Are you okay? No, I'm... Sorry, I... Must have had something bad in my food. Well, there was something the, um, the master wanted us to ask you. Is there anything strange that happens to you when you transform? Something that you feel? Or maybe something that you, I don't know, something that changes? I... I think I hear things. What do you mean, hear things? Like, you just have better hearing or what? No, um, I, I don't know what it is exactly, but it's almost like I can see again. What? Does it speak to you? I don't know. It's almost like the thoughts in your mind. And it lets you see. Almost. You hear the shuffling of their feet as they walk out and they close your door. They don't say another word to you. I look back to where I'm hiding the hood. 
You pull that hoodie and you kind of put it up to your face. And you feel it. It's a little rougher now than when it was. And a little tear kind of falls down your cheek. As that tear rolls down his cheek, the sun hits it. And we flash to a different scene. We're in the kind of the base of the mountains now, kind of where the forest meets the base of the mountains, just a little to the north. Come on, Popo, let's go. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm coming. We're seeing an, uh, an older gentleman, probably around his, probably around 30, and a younger child. Well, I say child, a younger adult, probably around 20 years old. You see this 5'10 humanoid individual with black hair, uh, brown eyes, you're kind of wearing torn, really worn clothes, just like a standard white shirt. And it's not really armor. It's more like just layers of fabric that have kind of like stuck together that you have around your body. And you're currently holding a deer carcass over your shoulders. Your half brother's also holding one. You're going back to your camp. Let's talk. Let's go ahead and talk about where you came from. You're a ranger, I believe. Mm-hmm. You yep. grew up kind of in these mountains, didn't you? Yep. Mm-hmm. What about when you were very, very young? So, I've lived in these mountains uh, my entire life. Uh, growing up has been kind of a struggle because my I did not grow up with parents to really raise me. I've really been... Uh, raised by my older brother Toro. He's not even your full brother, though, is right. he? Yep. He's, your He's half my half brother. He's basically been my my main mentor for my entire life, and he's been uh, caring for me and teaching me the ways of hunting and gathering in these mountains. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's just been a big inspiration in my life. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's pretty much. That's pretty much it. Your your older half-brother has always kind of been your father figure because your parents, they died when you were very young. Mm-hmm. You, and I, I, I didn't really remember how it happened. I just, I was too young to really comprehend what was going on at the time. Your, in fact, your half-brother was the one that kind of told you about it, that your parents died in some strange accident. He's never gone into too much detail, but you've never really felt the need to go into detail. You've always just kind of been satisfied with that answer. When you were much younger... Something happened to you one day. Do you remember how old you were? I was around 10, maybe 11. And you guys were hunting, and this winter had been very harsh for you guys. You guys have literally always grown up in the mountains. You've never mm-hmm. never really done anything in cities. And you were hungry, weren't you? I was very hungry. You saw a bush move as you and your brother were stalking some prey. Do you see that? I do. Okay. Uh, what, what do you What do you think it is? I, uh, you know, I'm not sure. Let's Let's just sit here and stake it out. He says that to you. You don't want to sit there and stake it out, though, do you? You're starving. You haven't eaten in two days. Toro, come on. I, po, I need. Poe, we have to stay calm. But you can't, can you? I can't. Toro turns around to grab something. You rush for that bush, don't you? I run. You rush for that bush and you dive in. Po, no! And 
from the bush, as you pull back the leaves for a split moment, you see this small, almost like golem looking creature that's covered in hair and it turns to you and it it just screeches <gasps> and it attack jumps on your face and it starts mauling you. No! Boo! And you start to black out as this thing starts to draw so much blood from you. And you feel it get ripped off your face. Po, 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 whoa, buddy. Doro, help me. Calm down, calm down, calm down. And he, he kind of like lays you on the ground and he like, he starts applying pressure to all your wounds and he cleans you up a little bit. And you you feel ill. Toro, something's, something's wrong. Po, 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 po. And as he says that, you feel this strange transformation, this twinge inside your body, and you transform into a were monkey. You try to say help, and it just comes off as a scream, and you black out. You don't remember anything from that. I don't know how to make a monkey. I don't know how to make <laughs> that was a excellent. Sound. Um, <laughs> you wake up in a tree, and you wake up, and you move your arm. And like a piece of fruit falls out, a piece of fruit that had clearly been frozen over, but like you had a big old bite mark out of it. And then you look down below, you're in a 50 foot tree. Po! Po! How did I get up here? Po! Toro! Toro! There you are. Oh my gosh. What? I, I don't know what happened. Are you, are you full? You, oh. and you, you stop and you think about it. You're very full. What, what happened? Do you look down? Yes. You look down and you see every single, you just see a pile of fruit on oh. the ground, like 50 feet below you. Like it's all half frozen. This is the mm -hmm. kind of fruit that you've seen that's like left on a tree. Mm -hmm. It's not quite rotting yet, but like it. It's it's starting to get there. It's just barely edible, and you just see piles of fruit. What? Fruit that you've never even seen before in this forest. What what have I done? He gets you down. He he actually climbs like halfway up the tree and helps you down. And he like kinda like takes his tongue and he spits on a piece of a rag and like he licks it and he kinda like starts to wipe your face off. And you're just like, Stop And he looks at you and he says, You You turned into a monkey. What? What? Yeah. It. What do you? What? What bit you? Was a were monkey. What? What? Where? What? I don't even know what that is. What? He bit you, little bro. You're. I think you contracted it. What? What it's, did I? What did I contract? Uh, hang on. I'll, let me. Let's. Let's go back to camp. Okay. Okay. I. I while while you were hunting, I, I grabbed a fifth, grabbed a few animals. Animals. Poe, I've been tracking you for three days. As you say that, Poe's face goes blank. What? What? I'm lucky I found you. I lost your trail about ten miles ago. What? Toro, I, I'm scared. It's okay. It's okay. Come on. And he puts his arm around you, and. You, you you feel like a little calmer, calm enough to at least get back to campsite. Mm -hmm. You just cut you contracted the curse of lycanthropy, didn't you? 
I did. You are a were monkey. You spend the next few years. You you try to cope with your curse. And your brother, even though he's not afflicted himself, he's very wise. He's always your half brother's always been very wise. And he almost kind of mentors you in a way of thinking when you transform. Hmm. To be more nimble, to be more light on your feet. Along with the natural instincts that you feel when you transform, you almost have this monk-like prowess about you when you transform, don't you? you? You're very agile, but you still kind of remember the ways of a hunter. In mm-hmm. You know to blend in with shadows and things like that. Over the years, your brother, in this weird way, helps you cope with your lycanthropy. Your brother's always been your father. You've had a father before, but he's pretty much always acted like one. One day, you and your brother, it's the middle of spring. This is almost 10 years later. You're almost 20 now. You guys are sitting next to a lake. You're having a good time. You actually had a really good hunt two days ago. And instead of cooking the meat, you guys figured you had so much meat, you'd go ahead and... um smoke it and you've actually just been eating off these uh the smoked meat for like a few days now you still have probably a week's worth of meat left it was such a good hunt you found all these boars and those boars were right next to a deer that had just been killed by another animal you able to salvage a lot of meat from it more meat than you like you've had this happened maybe a few years ago but it's been a while like you it feels almost weird that you haven't had to hunt in a few days and you guys are sitting there at this lake you're in the water having a good time, and he's kind of splashing water on you, kind of, you know, be doing what he does. At this point, he's your your older brother has always been about ten years older than you, um, so he's almost thirty at this point, and he kind of says, "Hey, Poe, come here, come here." Oh, he, yeah, <laughs> come swim over here, swim over here. Okay, Doro. And he kind of looks at Chewie and he says. Listen, I know things have uh, been kind of relaxed the, these past few days, but you, you, you got to remember, we got to like, you know, we got to stay vigilant because you never know. Like, Yeah, yeah, I know. And he kind of looks at you and you see this glint in his eye. He says, Poe, I know you, um, I know you never really got to grow up with our parents. Um, <laughs> Come on, you know I don't like to talk about this. Yeah, I, I know, but you're almost 20 and it's time I give you something. Uh, and yeah. he actually you knew he wore a necklace but you've never actually paid that much attention to it he takes off this necklace and he gives it to you and he says when when dad was still alive he gave this to me but he said he wanted me to hold on to it for you and when you got old enough to give it to you he said that it was it was the key to something but he would never really give me more information than that whoa it's time for you to have it and he gives it to you and it's a small chain with a mithril it is a mithril chain and normally you know how necklaces normally have like a little brace behind that you put on the back of your neck yeah this one doesn't have that and actually the part that separates is actually where the pendant is but it's not there's no pendant it's a small sprig of wood whoa it it you're looking at this 
and you were expecting much more something to intricate. It's literally just a piece of like wood, probably about three inches long with a mithril chain holding it. And that's it. You said this is a key? <laughs> this doesn't look like anything. <laughs> he was probably, it was probably like a metaphor or something. But he told me to give this to you. Uh, he said that it had um, This has actually been in our family for a long time. This is a special piece of wood and I don't, I don't know how, but he said this wood, this little twig is thousands of years old. <laughs> what? And it somehow hasn't rotted. Yeah, something about like a special tree or whatever. I don't know. So, I mean, it's probably something like some major college made like a long time ago and the wood just doesn't rot. You know, I, I have no idea, hmm. but he, um, do you want me to give it to you? Do you put it on? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll take this. You put on the necklace. And you feel this strange warmth go inside of you. Something that you haven't felt since the earliest days of being with your older half-brother, where he would care for you, and you always felt safe near him. It makes you think of that, because you always have felt safe near him. And your brother's sitting there, he's sitting on, it's not really a dock, it's more just like a big old rock at the edge of this lake mm -hmm. where you kind of swam up to. And he kind of leans down. And there's some like seaweed kind of esque like plant growing halfway out of the water. You know, Poe, there's um. When it comes to hunting and surviving out here, it, it feels like we're fighting the land and nature all the time. But in reality, we're really not. We've. And he kind of he, he kind of gets into this weird like <clears throat> state where he kind of starts talking almost like philosophical to you, and your character's never yeah. been one for that, has he? Hey, Toro, Toro, what what are you getting at? He kind of looks at you. He actually like gets really serious for a second, oh. and he says, "Bo, no matter what happens, I want you to remember something. No matter what we're doing, no matter where we are, the land is where we come from." And we do not use the land. The land uses us. And he reaches down and he grabs this plant. And as he grabs it, it starts to grow. And it warms into a lily pad. What? What are you doing? And he looks at you. And he grabs your hand. Whoa! And he like pulls ah. you. <laughs> he just kind of pulls you towards the water. And he says, look. Don't yell. Don't say anything. Huh. Just shh. Okay. Look. And he closes his eyes and he just... And you feel this even bigger warmth come from his hand. And he grabs... Shh. He takes your hand and he puts it on the lily... On the lily pad... And he just says, listen. And as you listen, you hear these whispers. You just hear these whispers. You, you, you open your eyes and you, can, you kind of look around. You can't say anything. You cannot bring yourself to say a word. You just see your brother sitting there and the wind starts picking up a little bit. And from your hand, you suddenly feel something. You look over, and the lily pad has grown a flower in your hand. 
And as you come to this like conclusion, the whispers stop and the wind just dies. And he looks at you and he goes, never forget, we are living on this land and we are an extension of it. Holy cow. You have learned the cantrip, nature's insight. For those of you listening, it is Druidcraft. But in this world, it is called Nature's Insight, and you may cast this at will. That's sick. You guys go back to the camp, and you fall asleep thinking about the warmth you felt to the lake. And you hold the necklace, the little twig, and you fall asleep. As he falls asleep, we kind of, this mist starts to appear. We go back to the city. And we find, well, what do we find? We find a human. He's in this, like, room with all these dummies. People hitting the bokus. You see sort of like kendo, where they have wooden sticks. Like, some of the juniors, they're uh, starting to uh, spar for the first time. And then you have the upperclassmen who are um, taking strikes with their new shining katanas or long swords. Um, occasionally you do see a great sword, uh, but they're all striking these dummies and you see instructors, uh, starting to bark orders. And, uh, you also see this old elf who's sitting quietly in the center of the room, watching all of his pupils fight. Swing with your left hand. That is where the power is driven. Your right hand guides the blade. You know this. These are the basics. And then, standing to the side as well, is someone kneeling on the ground, washing up some blood. It is a white-haired, kind of in a with a faux hawk um, style, uh, younger boy who is about 22, and... He is furiously scrubbing at this ground because it's made of bamboo and it's kind of a cloth over top. It's stained very fast. So he is scrubbing. This is Kale Warwickshire. How is your scrubbing coming along? He walks over. He takes your hand. Do not press. You rub lightly. And he takes your hand and he like, you realize you were pushing this really hard. And he, like, lifts your hand, and you're, like, clenching this rag. And he actually shows you that if you press really lightly, it comes right off. Sometimes the lighter touch is the most important. And he walks away, back to instructing the youngers. But that's just what's happening now. He's always been a wise man. Let's talk about when you were younger, though. Where'd you come from? I actually came from a different part of the world. Oh? Um, Just kind of new to town where everyone was kind of familiar with each other. My parents had to move, and it wasn't really good home life. And Mm. they were obviously struggling. But Kale knew that the one thing that he had in the world was his mom. 
Your mom was very special to you. And she brought you to the city, didn't she? She did. You guys went everywhere together. Your mom was borderline a helicopter parent, but you knew it was because of love. You were very young, though. You didn't quite have this concept, but you only thought of these things like many, many, many years later. But you lost your mom. How? It was very strange. It was market day. And that's the city was bustling. More people than you'd ever seen on market day. From where I came from, it wasn't a lot of people. And I was still growing used to just the pure volume of races and ages, monsters everywhere to him. Because all he knew was humans and the occasional beast, humanoid. But when they were walking through the town, there was... You kept hearing, feeling people like push and shove you, and your mom had like an iron grip on you, though. Until what happened? There was a point where we got into the center of town, the center of this market. There was a lot of produce everywhere. There was fish. There was everything. And she let go. As she let go, you felt someone like jostle you right where your hand was, and you had no choice to let go, too. Thinking your mom was going to re-grab your hand, you waited there for a second. And you kept waiting. And he looked around and he was... Mom? I run to the side. I run to a booth. I start pulling onto a market clerk's robe. Have you seen my mom? What are you talking about, Derry? Go away, kid. Please, I... I haven't and seen she him. pushes you away. You never found your mom, did you? You went up to several people. He didn't. Where'd you go? Into an alleyway. Where he laid down and hid. It was the quietest place that he knew. He stayed there until nightfall. You Hoping. still saw no signs of your mom, did you? No. She was gone in an instant. And Kale, he was lost. For the first time in his life, he was lost. But in this moment, you remembered something. You always remembered your mom saying, whenever you feel lost, honey, you go home. Home is where you will be safe is where you will find the strength to do what you need to do so what do you do he got himself up once the people were gone it was getting towards nightfall and the, cl the shops were starting to close when the nightlife started to grow and he saw one lone house right off this market district. And that was where his parents were. That's where he knew he had to go. You opened the door. It was unlocked for some reason. Your mom doesn't leave that door unlocked. You know it. The doormat was gone. And when he started to approach, his hands started to shake. And he began to reach for the door, even though he felt something holding him back. He knew that 
Whatever was behind that door was something that he didn't want to see. And when he opened it, the house was cleared. Nothing was inside. You never understood why your parents had left. You never understood why your mom had let go of your hand. You, it confused you. It, it almost made you angry. But something just didn't feel right about it. Nothing felt right about it. Your mom loved you. Your mom has gotten in the way of you getting hurt so that she would take the blow herself. And although you cried, you, you just couldn't blame her. There was something wrong about it. And you're crying. Someone walks up to you. Hello, young man. What? Oh, come here, my child. Come here. Don't touch me. He he stops and he just has his eye dot wide eyes. He he puts his hands up. He opens his cloak. He pulls out a tissue. And he just puts it about three feet in front of you on the ground. And he steps back. And he literally sits there, crosses his legs yoga style. And he just stares at you. Kale was on all fours as he was on the ground, and he looks up slowly from the tissue, stares at him, his eyes kind of shaking at the sight of this elvish old man. And Kale starts to sit onto the ground and grabs one leg and lifts it up and puts it into the yoga pose. What is your name, child? My name is Master Silk. What is your name, child? My, my name is... Kale. Kale Why? Warwickshire. Why are you crying on this street corner, my son? This wasn't just a street corner. This was my home. Is... He looks into the window. What happened here? And as he says this, he gestures off behind him, and you see three armed guards in full samurai gear walking up. And they just, like, stand there, and he just, like, he snaps twice, and he points to the house, and they all just, like, look at the house, and they start, like, looking around the house. You're not going to take me away, are you? No, my child. We're here to protect you. This is the guard. I'm looking for my mom. It is Laura Warwickshire. She has white hair like mine. He whistles, and you see another guard come. This one has a crossbow. And he tells him, look for the mother. Find her at every cost. Kale's, Kale's eyes lock onto... That samurai. That samurai looks at you, just this like stern look, and he just stomps his foot and nods, and then like literally just disappears into the crowd. There's no crowd. The lack of people, and he just disappears. And he looks at you, and he sees that your tissue is very dirty. He actually opens up the other side of his coat, and he pulls from the, like an identical pocket, the same type of tissue, except it's got like some really fancy border. 
And this time, instead of putting it on the ground, he kind of looks and he, like, reaches out to you. There's no reason to wipe a clean face with a dirty napkin. And then he just starts crying again. And he's like... And he takes it and it's all weighing down on him. He's, and he's just... Thank you. I, I don't know where they went. A few hours go by. And by a few, I mean like two. And at this point, Master Silk is like sitting next to you on the stool. On the, or the stool, the step. And he kind of steps up and talks to his guards. And he comes back to you. My child, how long did your parents live here? We just moved in about a year ago. A year. <laughs> and he listens, he kind of leans over and he tries to whisper to the samurai, but you hear him. He says, There's no sign that this house has ever been lived in. And, and the samurai looks at the kid and goes, What are you doing to him? And the, Master Silk smacks the samurai. And he says, you will address him by his name. Yes, yes, Sensei. Yes, Sensei. What, sh- what shall we do about Kale? <clears throat> and he reaches his hand towards you. Kale, if you would, I would take you to my dojo where we will protect you and try to see what happened to your family. I can. I can stay there like. like a home. My home is your home. And he just starts bawling again. <laughs> as, as, into, yeah. the, into the handkerchief. As, and he's just as crying. he's bawling, Master, Master Silk kind of walks up behind him <laughs> and he picks him up and he just holds him. He's you're you're how old are you right now? You're you're kind of you're not like infant. You're like no, he's about six. Years yeah, old. he's about six. So you're you're actually kind of a big child, but not like fat. You're you're just like you're a little taller. Yeah. And the master silk being really skinny, like <laughs> he looks so strange. Kind of looks like he's carrying like a almost like a preteen down yeah. the alleyway. And thank you, thank you, silk. As he rubs like your back, you feel this strange calm, and you fall asleep instantly. They spend a year actively looking for leads, and it's never officially said to you, but you know that there's nothing more they can do. And after that year, they make you an offer to stay there and to train. You accept that offer, don't you? Oh, yeah, I do. You're about a year and a half into training, and it's one of your first you're not really patrolling. You're kind of shadowing another samurai. Actually, it's the samurai that um, got slapped by Master Silk. And he says, all right, Kale, um, you uh, you go down that way. I'll go down this way. We'll be back in like five minutes. Uh, don't don't forget all the things to look for, you know, like strangers or like if there's excessive amounts of trash in the street, you just can't pick it up. And Sounds good. Thanks, Sir Bruce. Uh, I'll go on my way. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. As you like put your hands together to like bow, he just kind of like puts his hand on your shoulder. He's like, right on, wrong. And he just walks away. I'll be back real soon. See ya. And he just starts running away. And you start and you find this alleyway and there's actually like an excessive amount of trash in this alleyway and you start to pick it up a little bit. You see something. What do you see? Uh, He reaches down. Picks up this 
small, dark green frog with bright red eyes. You hear something in the darkness ahead of you. And that frog jumps out of your hands. Uh, hey, hey, little guy. Uh, and you just hear this croaking. You pull out your wooden boku that you were given for night patrol. Take it out. And I and as you pull it out, you realize you're right next to Master Silk's a club that he generally goes to around this time of night. It's a full moon. It's a beautiful night. And you look over onto this trash can and you see Master Silk's robe as something jumps out of the darkness and jumps on you and attacks Get off! Clamp! And it bites into your left arm. As it... And as as this happens, the clouds move in and cover the moon and this this is actually pretty early in the morning like it's almost 6 a.m at this point this was one of your first times this was one of your first times being out on like early like morning patrol late night early morning and as this happens the this giant creature looks like a giant frog stands up and it goes I'm sorry. What do you mean? I don't, and as I don't even he know says you. that, he transforms back into Master Silk. S- S- Kale. Kale. And he like grabs his like, he grabs his robe and he like throws it on and he's just like, oh, what? Oh, heavens, what have I done? You heard me, Master Silk. Kale, come, come, come on. We gotta go. We gotta go to the hospital. No. We gotta go see the clerics. What are you? I'm a werefrog, Kale. What? Come on. And he, he grabs you, and like, you just don't know what to do because your arms start to feel really limp. And then, like, he brings you to the clerics in the hospital, and you pass out again. You wake up, and Master Silk is sitting there. Oh. oh. Master. Oh. Master. Master Silk. He looks at you. What did you? What are you doing here? Was I asleep for long? He looks at a calendar, and you look at it. It's been three days. Your arm. And is, I check my arm. It's completely healed, except for a few bite marks in the shape of like a long, a, fr- a mouth, have, a I, frog's mouth. Yeah. It could have been anything. Master Silk. Q. Was I dreaming? No. And he goes on to explain to you that he has always been a werefrog and that he has already talked to the guards, but you weren't supposed to be around that nightclub that night. He explains that although he goes there normally every few days, during the full moon, he stays near the back of the nightclub where the owner has a special like cage for him to transform when he loses control entirely. And he tells you that that cage was broken that night. Some loiterer tried to break in thinking it was the door to the building and he broke it and you weren't supposed to be there in the first place and he's already fired the person who made the schedule and he tells you, he gives you the deepest apology that he could ever, you could look, you can see the look on his face. He wants to cry. He wants to cry because 
None of the clerics were able to cure you. And you are now a werefrog. What does that mean? What is, what's going to happen to me? You have already went through your first transformation. My first transformation? And he kind of like looks at the clerics. And the clerics leave the room. What and, he, and he just, as he says that, he just... And he just casually transforms into this like large frog-like creature with a bot with an almost a normal human torso, but it's slightly skinnier at the bottom, like a frog's. And he, but he's sitting there and he looks at you. You notice? You mean I'm that? He, you notice one thing, and you're like desperate, like bewilderment. You notice that his eyes are not as wild and crazy as when they attacked you, and he looks at you. Yes, you are. You're actually a lot more colorful than the slow. You know, he's like a really dark green and brown. I'm sorry, Kale. And he kind of looks down again, just... <sighs> as he actually transforms back into a, um, into a regular elf, right? He transforms back into an elf. He, and he looks at you. Kale, I will teach you everything there is to know. About controlling this. I am the fault. And I will fix this problem. You spend the next few years. Um, kind of training. And every full moon. You feel that urge to go transform. And you do so. You know that you're not as controllable. In that form. Oh, no. You try to. You start sneak. A few years later. You actually start sneaking down to the training room. Right? Late at night. Why are you sneaking down there? thing is about helping out and trying to stay at this place working every day is he doesn't have a time to train get better but not just train regularly though oh there's a different type he's trying to train in his lycanthrope form am i right oh he is well, it's hard though, isn't it? The way your anatomy changes when you turn to a frog, you can't seem to swing a sword. Kale is, in his normal form, extremely fit. He is yes. trained all his life to protect the ones that he loves. He will never lose someone again. So he has built his body up. But after the transformation in the frog's form, I mean, you've seen a frog's arms. They're... Skin and bone. Yeah. So you try to use a crossbow, don't you? Oh, yeah. What happens when you try to use a crossbow in that form? Well, he's trying to use a heavy crossbow, which is the one that the samurai was holding Mm -hmm. on the first day he saw them. That's right. What happens when you try to use that crossbow? What happens? Actually, a couple times, he's he won the lifting it is extremely hard and it's a hundred pound knockback so you have to be able to lift a hundred pounds to even get it back and when you fire there's a lot of kickback and once it actually dislocated his shoulder needing master silk to push it back in but you never told why master silk why your shoulder was dislocated did you you kind of brushed it off no i just said that i fell off a building while i was trying to hop and you said that to him, he kind of gives you this look. 
and you can feel him looking into you as that moment goes down. But then he looks away, and you just kind of think he was questioning what the heck happened. One night, you go down there. You're frustrated. You're trying to get this crossbow to work. You can't even get the bow or the bolt into the crossbow and pull it back. You try, and you literally fling your hands up, and the crossbow falls, and you stop. And you look, because it made a loud noise. And then you try to shoot it. You successfully get the shot off. But it kicks you back. And the crossbow falls again. But this time, as it falls, a hand reaches out and catches it. And you look up and you see Master Silk. Shh. Silk. Shh. I really love that, by the way. Um he puts his hand. Yeah, he can't. He he yeah. goes to put his finger on your mouth, and he like grabs your whole like head. I'm sorry. And, and he looks to the stairs. And he waits. He puts the crossbow down. And he looks at you. And he points. And then he puts his fingers to his eyes, and then points to himself. And then he goes over and he takes off his robe. And Master Silk is actually really fit. He's very lean. He's very skinny. But he is built well. And he puts his hands into a symbol. And he transforms into a werefog himself. He walks over and he picks up the crossbow. And he shoots it. And it doesn't even hit the target. And you can tell he's struggling too. But not as much as you were. And he kind of like puts it down really quietly. And he walks over to his robe. He pulls out a strap and a small piece of wood in a weird shape. He strings it around himself and straps it to the crossbow and mounts this piece of wood on the side of the crossbow. And he lifts up the crossbow with ease. He cranks back that weird piece of wood. And you see him knock a bolt in there, fire it, and hit a bullseye. He then walks back over to his cloak. What? He grabs your hand, head again with his like his frog hand. As he says that, or as you try to say that, he transforms back into an elf, reaches over to his cloak, and he pulls out another piece of wood and in a separate strap. He puts it next to you on the ground. He looks at you and he just goes, and he walks back upstairs. You eventually learn how it works, and it's a strange, like, the harness goes around your whole chest and allows your crossbow to stay on you, putting the weight on your center of mass so that you can actually hold this thing up. And then the handle gives you torque so you can pull the actual crossbow and aim it. As long as you have these two things, you are proficient using a heavy crossbow in that form. And unlike your other gear... Another armor, when you transform, this harness stays on you. Interesting. Do you examine it? I do. I want you to give me give me an intelligence check. Pure intelligence roll. That's a nat 20. <laughs> Is it really? Yep. <laughs> okay. You don't know much about this, but you do know this harness has been imbued with... 
magic. And from what you've seen, you've seen one other item like this before. You know that this item will always fit the wearer, no matter what, after you've attuned to it. Interesting. And you barely know how to attune to an object, so you do so. One day, about a year or two later, you're probably, or not a year or two later, a little longer, you're actually about, you're actually about 21 at this point. Okay. Your master takes you outside the city. You were supposed to be doing a patrol at the edges of the city, but he kept you going. And you notice as you're walking out of the city, there's actually another guard where you were supposed to be. And he says, as he like walks out, he kind of looks at you and goes, we're going to go and just relax for the rest of the evening. And he just like winks at you. What do you mean? We're supposed to work, right? Why do you think you didn't bring a boku with you? I do this with, I've done this with every student. We need to just go have a day where we relax. We work all year long. Come on, Kale. And he brings you to like this beautiful pond where you can't help it. You transform into your frog form and you just swim around. You're such a fast swimmer in this form. And as as you're swimming, Master Silk is laughing. I love this. And he's throwing, he actually starts throwing you this special candy that, um, that the corner store sells the store that was right next to your house actually of course and he starts throwing at you and use your tongue to like catch it give me a dex check give me a dex check Ooh, what'd you get boy we go from a nat 20 to a nat one you now so he tries to throw these things and, and like Slap every, in the face. every other time you try to catch this candy you actually catch like a fly but you don't like flies that's disgusting <laughs> and master soga sitting there at the edge of the water lapping his ass off oh come on <laughs> what's going on here <laughs> i love that candy <laughs> you know kale sometimes the best way to focus is to get away What's that supposed to mean? <clears throat> and he kind of, he kind of like, <clears throat> because he, you know, it was kind of a humid day, and his like his he kind of sounded a little snotty. Kale, come here for a moment. I want to show you something. Okay. What's up? I have derived all of my techniques from what I have seen in the wild. There are lots of people out here. People that are very strange. Not any more strange than some frogs, right? He looks at you and he just smiles. Nature is very strange, Kale. Everything we do, we derive from it. From the shape of our swords to how our armor stacks upon us. And if you listen closely, Kale, you can hear that inspiration. And he puts his hand on your shoulder and you feel this warmth. This very strange warmth that you haven't felt since the days where your mom would hold you. Kale starts to tear up. You start to tear up and you kind of like put your hand onto the side of the rock that your master's sitting on. And you feel something start to crawl up your arm and you look. Moss started growing from the rock to your arm and you look at your hand and it's covered in moss. What is, what's, and he just starts waving his hand and rubbing it off. What did, shh, Kale, listen. And he puts his like hands, he takes two fingers and he puts them to your forehead. And you almost hear like a shh. 
as you start hearing something, you hear whispers. You can't discern them at all. You don't know what they're saying, but you hear them all around you. And as you hear them, you look at your hand, but you're, you're in such a calmed state for no reason. The moss in your hand starts to grow. It just gets thicker until it becomes this ball of moss. And he lets go of your forehead and you just stop. And the moss, the whole like ball of moss that has grown in your hand falls into the water. And he looks at you and he says, nature is how we master ourselves and the demons within us. Nature's hand has always guided us as a monastery. Remember that, Caleb. I will. You go back to the monastery after, or no, start of the monastery. You go back to the dojo? Yes. You go back to the dojo afterwards and you kind of ponder on this. And you're pro- you're a little curious. You have this uh, bonsai tree in your window that you always keep very like neat and conform. We grab the bonsai tree and it just starts to grow and grow and grow to the point where you have to stop. Uh, uh, um, and, uh, and you let go. You literally let go. And the bonsai tree, like, it just stops short of breaking through the spot. And you, like, the next day, you go to, like, the quartermaster, and you say, um, this is, like, a strange question, but, like, I, I need I need a new pot for my bonsai. He looks at you, and then he, he comes into your room with the same size pot, and he's just, his jaw just drops. What? Uh, it you know had, what? I dropped I, a drink in. Uh, he just looks at you and he just I've been drinking I mean no Kale Kale just hey walk trust hey, me he literally takes like three steps down the hallway and he um he uh he brings back a larger pot and he replants your bonds for you and he just goes thank you sir yeah all of our adventurers have tasted nature now with all of their mentors Darker times are ahead of them, but they'll always have that one touch of nature with them to show them the light at the end of the tunnel where the sun is. Oh, because it's a train. <laughs> well, well, well. That was a good episode, wasn't it? It's good to see you kept your pants on this time. Good job. I was rooting for you. Dungeon Train is produced by Max Brummer. With voices by Mason Brummer, Dylan Los, Nathan Collum, Blake Thompson, and last but certainly not least, Alex White. I'd like to thank you all for joining us on the Dungeon Train. Who knows what chaos is going to happen in the next episode? Join me on the next stop for a new story. I'll see you there.